Welcome to Into the Verse, where we share new and unexpected insights about an upcoming Parsha or holiday, diving deep into the verses to uncover the Torah's own commentary on itself. This is Ari Levison. There's a saying about Purim that it has a lot in common with a certain other Jewish holiday. If I had to guess which one, I'd probably look for a holiday with parties, masks, and lots of celebration. I don't think my first guess would have been Yom Kippur. But if you look at the Torah's name for Yom Kippur, it's actually Yom HaKippurim. And Kippurim sounds pretty much the same as Kippurim, or in Hebrew, like Purim. Now, when I first heard this, I thought, well, that's a cute play on words, but Come on, Yom Kippur was around long before Purim. After all, Yom Kippur is in the Chumash, the five books of Moses. But Purim's not a holiday from the Torah. It's in the book of Esther, which was written much later on, in the days of the Persian Empire. And of course, that's true. But even though it doesn't make sense to say that Yom Kippur is supposed to be similar to Purim, a much later holiday, what if we are supposed to see Purim as being kind of similar to Yom Kippur? Still, that's crazy, you say. Yom Kippur is for fasting, atoning for our sins, whereas Purim fits that classic Jewish holiday pattern of they tried to kill us, we were saved, let's eat. So where's the similarity? Well, this week, Rabbi Foreman and Rifki Stern lay out a whole list of connections between Yom Kippur and Purim, or to be more exact, between the Book of Esther and the Yom Kippur Avoda, the service, from Parshat Achremot in Leviticus. Before we start, I need to give you some background. Rivki and Rabbi Foreman had a previous conversation that looked at the connections between Miguel at Esther and the Parsha right before Achremot, Parshat Shemini. I'll give you just a brief sample of what they found. Miguel at Esther begins with King Ahasuerush giving a feast that lasts seven days. And Parshat Shemini tells about the seven-day consecration ceremony for the priests in the brand new Mishkan, the tabernacle. But it's not just that they both have seven-day celebrations. Each celebration ends with an unexpected disaster. In Parshat Shemini, two priests, Aaron's sons Nadav and Avihu, decide to bring an extra offering of incense to God that they weren't commanded to bring, and it results in their deaths. What happens in Megillat Esther is kind of an inverse of that story. The king commands his queen, Vashti, to come into his presence and show herself off to all the guests. But Vashti refuses, and the king banishes her. And that, of course, is the background for Esther's becoming queen. So now Rabbi Foreman and Rifki will pick up the conversation where they left off, and the parallels they find will help us answer the question, why would Megillah Esther want us to see a connection between the Purim story and the holiday of Yom Kippur? Rifki, you psyched? Yeah, I can't wait. Thanks for having me back. We were looking at intertextual parallels in Parshat Shmini that brought us all the way to the very end of Tanakh to, of all things, the book of Esther. What I have in mind to do is try to explore a tantalizing epilogue here that seems to be lurking in Achremot. If I kind of quizzed you and said, you know, what's the last thing you'd think you'd hear about in the book of Esther, it'd be Parshat Shmini and Achremot, right? Right. You look at Parshat Achrayim at the beginning and say, what's it really about? It's about the Avod of Yom Kippur. 
if I were beginning the, the Yom Kippur Avodah, I would have talked about it. There's going to be Yom Kippur, and it's going to have the special Avodah, the special service, and it's going to be so great. It's going to give you forgiveness from all your sins, and here's how you do it. That's how I would have started. It's not how the Chumash starts. Look how the Chumash starts. I'm reading now chapter 16, verse 1 in Leviticus. God calls to Moshe after the death of the two sons of Aaron, in their coming close before God, and they're dying. And what does God say after the death of the two sons of Aaron? Speak to Aaron your brother. Let him not come in all the time into the Holy of Holies, the Beit Leparochet, inside the curtain where the Holy of Holies is, al kaporet, in front of the covering of the Ark, Asher al-Aran, that's on the Ark, below Yamut, because I don't want him to die, and therefore let him not come at all times into this place. Kibanan era al-Kaporet, it's such a dangerous place, because in a cloud, I, God, appear over the kaporet, the covering of the Ark. So this is a place in which transcendence is imminent, in which God is there in the world, and it's, it's dangerous for human beings to encounter, and therefore... Bezot Yavo Aaron ala Kodesh. Only through this shall Aaron come into the Kodesh. Once a year shall Aaron come into this Holy of Holies, and he should do it this way. But Paraben Bakar, and then we get into the whole Avoda, the whole special service of Yom Kippur. So look how counterintuitive that is. We're not talking about sin, washing away sin, we're not talking about how special this Avoda is. We're talking about those days in which the tabernacle was first consecrated and something terrible happened. Two sons of Aaron died, and that forms the backdrop. Tell Aaron the following that he should not come into the Holy of Holies all the time so that he would risk death. Tell him this after the deaths of the two sons of Aaron, who in fact died because of an improper approach into the Holy of Holies. Tell him this is how you enter the Holy of Holies. So strangely and fascinatingly, the Yom Kippur service is actually being seen primarily as the way in which the consecration of the Mikdash could be redone in a successful way. Right. We saw Nadav and Avihu as really a failed approach to God, a failed approach to the service in the Mishkan. And this seems to be the way that God says to Moshe, hey, I know that one went poorly, but here's a way in which we can do it. And it's going to be a successful way in which you enter the Mishkan. And Rabbi Foreman, that seems to me just like Vashti and just like Esther. Yeah, am I am I on the right right track there? You are totally channeling my thoughts. Yes. Here. What we saw in Esther was that there were all these parallels to what happened in Parshat Shemini. And, and particularly, there was this encounter with the king that went poorly. And if you and you paid attention to those intertextual parallels, you found that right in the beginning of the Megillah, in chapter one, there is a queen that is called upon to come into the inner sanctum of the king, and she won't come. So it's the sort of inverse of the Nadav and Avihu story, right? Because of the Nadav and Avihu story, right, they, came they when were they not called. called, and they came improperly. And here, the inverse of that is... Vashti is called, and she refuses to come, and and that's where all those language parallels sort of appear in the Megillah, taking us back to the Nadav and Avihu story. So as Rifki is intuiting, if the Nadav and Avihu story has a replay in Vayikra, and the replay of it is the intended service of the Kohen Gadol on every Yom Kippur, Achimot says 
that there is a way to do what Nadav and Aviyu did correctly, and here's what you do, isn't it interesting that the Megillah also has a way to do what Vashti did incorrectly, and here's what you do? Because Vashti is not the only queen who is called upon to sort of make this approach to the king. There's another queen who finds herself in a very similar place, and that is, of course, Esther. There's a moment when Esther needs to make an approach to the king. And if you look carefully at Esther's approach to the king, which is what I want to do with you now, you're going to hear the parallels to wouldn't you know at Ahremot. Before we get to what happens with Esther and the king, let's take a minute to remember what's going on at this point in the story. Why does Esther have to approach him now? It's because of the urgent message she receives from her uncle Mordechai. All the Jews throughout the entire Persian Empire are in terrible danger. The king's minister, Haman, is trying to get them all killed. Esther needs to intervene with her husband, the king, to stop Haman's plan from taking effect. Now, King Ahasuerus doesn't know that Esther herself belongs to the Jewish people, and that's because Mordechai counseled her that she would be safer in the palace if no one knew her true parentage. But now that the people are threatened, it's time for her to speak out, and everything depends on her making this approach successfully. I'm going to read something in the book of Esther, and you're going to tell me what about it reminds you of the Yom Kippur Avoda, just even the little part that we just we just read together. Okay. So let's go now to Esther's approach to the king and just kind of listen for the resonances. I'm reading now from Esther chapter 4. Mordechai says, Esther, you got to go to the king. We need you, right? This is the moment you've got to reveal who it is that you really are. Oh, and what happens essentially is that Esther demurs and she's like, says, I can't do it. Uh, I can't do it because I have not been called into the king's courtyard, right? The, if you come into the king's courtyard and you're not called, you do that on pain of death. You're going to die. Rifki, what does this remind you of? That God says explicitly, if you come in when you're not called, he says, to, if you are own, uh, come in, then you will die, right? Velo yamut. Exactly. Do it the right way so that you do not die. Right. We, we know death is is on the table here. So again, when Esther says, her language is, everybody knows, all of the servants of the king know, anybody who comes into the inner sanctum, who is not called, who's coming in against the rules, they are going to die. The decree against them is that they must die. There's just one way to do it that the king allows, and then you live. That's really the, exactly the formulation that we have here, which is that, you know, if you come in any old time, you're going to die. There's one way to do it where you won't die, right? You can't just come in any old way, right? Here's how you have to do it that you won't die. Right, because it's it's dangerous. The king is there. The divine king is there. Well, the earthly king is in the palace, and if you come into his inner sanctum, you risk death as well. Now, let's keep on reading here in Esther's approach to the king. So, what happens? Mordechai hears what Esther says, and Mordechai then responds. So, take a look at Mordechai's response and listen carefully to it. And again, Rifki, I ask you, what about Mordechai's response also resonates with just those initial first couple sentences that we just read in the Yom Kippur Avoda? Here's Mordechai. Vayomer Mordechai Lashiv El Esther. Mordechai then says to respond to Esther, Al Tadami Benafshech Limalit Betamalach Mikol Yudim Esther. 
don't think for a minute that you alone will be able to survive the onslaught, taking shelter and refuge in the palace. Im hazot, if you remain silent at this time, will all be fine. You will be the one who's destroyed. And who knows if it was for this moment that you have come into the, the queenship. So again, listen carefully to that language. Does anything okay, about that I, language I think remind I, you? It's only one word, but I think it's the language of time, eight, because God also says about our own, Good. you cannot just enter the Kodesh whenever you want. The, the time is very specific. Good. Look at that language of eight, which is exactly the same. But it's not just eight. It's eight paired with one word, because look how that goes in verse two and contrast it to verse three. Verse two. You can't mm. come at any old time to the Kodesh. Rifki, when can you come, according to verse 3? Oh, mm. You can only come with this. Mm -hmm. You can't come at any old eight. Instead, come. What does that remind you of Esther? Let me read it to you one more time. Mordechai, if you keep silent, right. if you keep silent at this time, so we'll be fine without you. And who knows? If it was for just this moment, right? It's the merger of those two words, right? Isn't that fascinating? If you go back to the Yom Kippur Avodah, it's, right, you can't come any old time, behol eight. Rather, you have to come at a particular time, bezot. And now the Megillah seemingly intentionally playing off of those words, eight and bezot. Mordechai, talking about the one propitious moment, says, you know, normally you can't come, but if this a designated moment passes and you don't go, hazot, not at any old time, but at this particular time, right? Then you've missed your chance. Let me introduce a third element here, right? We talked about the element of death when you aren't called. That's element number one. Element two, ba'et hazot. What about element three? Esther then responds to Mordechai and says, fine, here's what I want you to do. Lech knoset kol hayudim, get everyone together, v'tsumu alai, v'al tochlu v'al tishtu Everyone should fast. Gamani v'naratai atzum kem. Me and my servants, we will also fast. Uvechein avo el hamelach asher lo kadat. And that's how I will come to the king when I am not called. Fasting while you're coming to the king in a special time? What does that remind you of? That's exactly Yom Kippur. It's exactly Yom Kippur, right? Bezot yavo Aaron alakadosh. This is how Aaron has to come. She comes fasting, just as Aaron was fasting. Plus, what is she wearing? What do we hear in verse 4 in the Yom Kippur Avodah? Ketoned bad kodesh. Oh, very cool. He has specific clothing that he has to wear. Very special clothing. Now, what does Esther have to wear? Esther wears specific big day machut. Exactly. Vayihi bayom the verse says, in the beginning of chapter 5, Vatilbash Esther machut. Can't come to the king if you're not wearing your special clothes. Now, I want to just point out to you, Rifki, we've had four parallels now before Esther going to, when Esther going to the king, taking us back to the Yom Kippur Avodah. And it's not just that there's four general parallels. They've actually proceeded in order. Mm -hmm. The first issue is Esther's fear of dying, right? Because people might die 
followed by the Ba'et Hazot notion, that no, there's a specific moment that you could come, followed by, fine, I'm going to go, and this is how I'm going to go, and followed by, and I'm going to be wearing these clothes. Well, those four parallels happen in order in the Yom Kippur Avoda. First, the issue that if you don't come in at the right time, if you come in all the time, you can die, right? Element number one. And then the whole, that there's a special moment, Bezot, this is the moment that you can come, not Bechol eight, but Bezot, the eight Hazot connection. And then Aaron's coming into the Kodesh, Yavo Aaron Elo Kodesh, element number three, he's going to come in, presumably fasting. And then element number four, Ketonet Bad Kodesh Yilbash, he's going to be wearing a special clothes, just like Esther. So it's kind of remarkable here. Do the parallels continue? Well, let's see if we can find a fifth. Verse five and verse six are the beginnings of these offerings. Aaron's going to come, and he's going to be coming with this sin offering, right? What does that remind you of, that language and idea? First thing Aaron has to do is bring a personal sin offering. Well, if you think about it, what's really the first thing Esther has to do? Ooh. Is there anything that would be analogous to the personal sin offering for Esther? I, I think, I mean, this might be a stretch, but I think that's Esther herself. Explain. Because when she enters the room, she doesn't know. She's scared. The, the king might say to her, what are you doing? You were not allowed in this room without permission. Off with your head. You're dead. You're, you're done. But what she does when she enters that room, the king raises his scepter and then she herself enters the room. She can only enter once she knows that she is accepted. And that seems to be the acceptance, as it were, of the sin offering. Yeah. And now look at the language of it back in verse 2. And when the king saw Esther, he reaches out with his scepter, Asher Briado Vatikra Esther, Vatiga Barosha Shardiz. And she draws close and touches the scepter. That's when the king accepts her as she is, even though she's going against the law. And that language, Vatikrav, is a perfect echo of the Hikriv Aaron at Parachatat that he's coming with this sin offering. There might also be another element of sin, which is, if you think about it, there's a little deception going on here, and it's been going on here in Esther. If there's any sort of sin in Esther, which Mordechai is saying, look, it's time to come clean before the king, you know, what might that sin be? Esther has been hiding something, and maybe she should, maybe she shouldn't, but she hasn't been, been straight with the king about who she is. Well, she's coming close to kind of make that big reveal. You have to understand who I really right. am. And, and that, that also feels like us, just like Yom Kippur, right? On Yom Kippur, we, we are opening ourselves up to that complete honesty. We say, God, exactly. you know, we have that relationship, and this is me. You know, I'm sorry, and I, I maybe, maybe I failed in a lot of ways, but this is me, and I, I still want that relationship with you. Can you still accept me? Can you? Can I be honest with you? And can you still love me? To me, Rifki, that's one of the like the main takeaways here. Is this kind of? It, it's showing you what. It, to, in essence, the sin offering is really all about. It's that we present us to the king as we really are. Wow. The Yom Kippur is the moment where we can just say, look, we might be dressed up in all these royal clothes, but inside is just a fragile human being with his sins. I have to come to you with who I really am, and, and, and you just have to accept me, and we wait for the king to give us the scepter and to be accepted. And it's what Esther is doing now with the king, and it's what we all do, what the Kohen Gadol does 
on our behalf. And if you think about it, Rifki, just to kind of close out the, the parallels here, because I don't know what all of this means, but one thing which I think is special is the Kangala has more than one request. He has a personal request, which is for personal wrongdoing, and then a national request. He's asking for everyone, for the people, wow. to all be saved and not be destroyed. What about us? Yeah, that's exactly what she does. She first says, look, this is me. This is who I am. I, I know I'm sort of breaking the rules right now. And then she goes into, and I need you to save my people. Don't just save me, right? You can just save me if you want. I'm your wife. That would be understandable. But save everyone. That's that powerful national request. Exactly. And isn't it fascinating in light of all of this that our sages tell us something about Purim, don't they? They tell us it's a, that there's another holiday Whoa. that's kind of like Purim. And what is it? Yom Kippurim. Yom Kippur is a Yom Kippurim, a day just like Purim. And maybe we're starting to understand how. I've often tried to put myself in Mordechai and Esther's shoes when they're deciding to send Esther on the mission impossible to approach the king. I never understood where their bravery came from. How did Mordechai even know his plan would work? Uncovering these clues, we see that Mordechai and Esther themselves give us the answer in the language they use recording the events of their own lives. They looked at the Torah and the description of the Yom Kippur Avoda and were inspired to take on the impossible. Esther, just like Aaron, could go before the king to save the whole nation. They knew it would be dangerous. They had to get it just right. But they also knew that the entire nation was counting on them. Hey everyone, it's Beth Lesh here, one of the scholars and editors behind Into the Verse. And I'm recording this message for you live from my humble desk in the basement of my apartment building in the holy city of Jerusalem where I spend so many of my hours working virtually with my amazing colleagues, crafting Torah podcasts to share with you. I am proud that we're creating high quality Torah from our Beit Midrash, where we pour our time and energy and love into text study so we can offer up fresh, exciting interpretations. And in our production studio, where we attach all the bells and whistles to make it a pleasure for you to listen to. And all of that requires resources. You get that. So if you value what we're doing, please help us to fund it. Subscribe to Aleph Beta. You can check out the link in the description. This episode was recorded by our lead scholar, Rabbi David Foreman, together with Rifki Stern. When this episode originally aired on Aleph Beta, it was edited by Rifki Stern. Into the Verse editing was done by Sarah Pensel. Our audio editor is Hilary Gutman. Our audio editing for this episode was done by Schiffer Jacobs. Additional audio editing was done by Hilary Gutman. Our senior editor is me, Ari Levison. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.